ready to take a ride, grab your coffee, and strap yourself in. If you listen, I can hear God's plan. Because the show is about to begin. You're listening, you're listening to the Omega Man Radio Network. Started tonight. Praise God. Glad to be here with you again. What a fantastic week in the Lord this has been. We've had some great programs, great guests this week, and you know God's really given us favor, and I praise Him for that. For those of you who are here for the first time, I want to welcome you to Omega Man Radio. We've been doing this program now about a year. We've got about uh, almost 290 shows in the can, and uh, what we do is we do a nightly program, Monday through Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time to 11 p.m., and then uh, Saturday nights, we are starting a uh, real deliverance program at uh, 7 p.m., 7 to 10. So you can catch these programs live. Uh, we do have live open lines. And if you missed it in its entirety, you can always get these on MP3. Free download, you can get them on uh, OmegaManRadio.com or go over to iTunes uh, and subscribe there for free. It's a free download to your iPod. And uh, spread the word about Omega Man Radio. Uh, our mission is to do the full gospel message. Do what Jesus Christ did, what he called us to do. Preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out devils in his name. And we thank, uh, thank the Lord for the brother that's going to be on tonight. I've got a great show for you. This is going to be Pastor William Lau, international evangelist, missionary, He's been all over the world, and he's got an exciting training. It's called the Elijah Challenge, and we're going to be doing uh, what's called Basic Training 1, Session 1 tonight. I'm telling you what, you do not want to miss this program. In fact, it's not too late to call your family and friends and tell them to tune in. You know, folks, you're going to learn something tonight that uh, many of you have not come across before, because unfortunately, in many of the churches today, they've got a message but you don't see the signs and wonders to follow. You don't see the, you don't see what Jesus did being done in many places out there. Because many believe, hey, miracles aren't for today. Healing's not for today. And you know they're sorely mistaken because all these things are available today. And Jesus said, "You'll do even greater things than I do." In fact, the Word says, "In the last days, we even do exploits." So I'm excited to know. That uh, the healing power of God is for today. God can still heal. And you're going to learn tonight, um, it's not going up and praying and asking someone, asking God to heal someone. It's the authority that we've got to command in Jesus Christ's name to get things done. So I'm going to bring him on and uh, want to welcome 
everyone again that's tuning in tonight. Um, let me give out Pastor Lyle's website, theelijahchallenge.org, theelijahchallenge.org. All right, let's get Pastor Lau on. Stand by. Brother Lau, how are you t- doing tonight, my brother? I'm very fine, Shannon. Thank you for having me. Brother, it's an honor and a pleasure. Uh, we had you on last year, and I said, you know what, we've got to get Brother Lau on. And uh, we've got so many new people tuning in. We need this training. Everybody needs this training. Mm, I'm ready to go, brother. Amen. Brother, the microphone is yours. Okay. Let's begin with prayer, shall we? Let's ask the Lord to uh, give us wisdom to understand his word. Let's pray, shall we? Our Father in heaven, we come to you now, Lord, in the name of Jesus. We are your disciples, Lord. And we want to do your will. We want to do the works that Jesus did according to John fourteen twelve. So, Father, I ask you to grant me wisdom to teach your word, Lord, to your disciples. And, Father, I ask that you would open up their ears and their eyes and their minds and their hearts, Lord, to receive what is written in your word, Lord. And then, Father, may you grant them the grace to apply it, Father, for the sake of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you hear us. We thank you, Father, that the Holy Spirit is now here to teach us, for he is the teacher. We thank you, Lord, for about what for what you are about to do, Lord, through your word, through your disciples. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, let's begin. We're going to begin the Elijah Challenge Basic Training 1. And essentially, I'm going to be talking about the restoration of power and boldness to the church for the last days. I believe most of us would agree that we are in the last days and that Jesus is about to return. However, before he returns, we have to complete the Great Commission. And as I look at the church today, I don't see the church about to complete the Great Commission. We are weak, we lack power, we lack boldness. And so I'm convinced that during these last days, God will restore power and boldness to the church in order that we may, in fact, fulfill the Great Commission. Let's look at the Word of God, shall we? We're going to look at the very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, chapter 4 and verse 5. If you have your Bible, let's open it up and take a look. Matthew, excuse me, Malachi, chapter 4 and verse 5. The prophet says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Now, what does this prophecy mean? Well, it talks about the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That refers to the coming of the Messiah. Whether the first coming or the second coming, it refers to the coming of the Messiah, that great and dreadful day. And the prophet says, Elijah will be sent before that great and dreadful day. So what exactly does that mean? Well, in order to find out, let's look at the ministry of Elijah in his day. Exactly what did Elijah preach? How did he minister? We're going to examine that right now. Excuse me. We know that during the time of Elijah, nearly the entire nation of Israel had backslidden, and they were worshiping a false god named Baal. And Elijah essentially was raised up to preach repentance to them, to call God's people back to him. But they were very hard-hearted. They were confused, and they were deceived. And it was difficult Even after three and a half years of drought followed by famine, sent by God, still they would not wake up. Still they would not repent and come back to the Lord. And so finally, Elijah did something very dramatic. 
to show them who the true God was. And so we know that Elijah was called to preach repentance to the backslidden Israelites. And the Israelites, of course, were God's people. So I repeat, Elijah was called to preach repentance to God's backslidden people. And let's see how he did it. Let's let's look at what Elijah did at Mount Carmel. Now, we all know about this. Let's examine this particular incident. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning with verse 20. Here, uh, Elijah appears before King Ahab, who, along with his wife, was primarily responsible for causing the Israelites to turn to Baal. Let's look at what happens. Verse 20, So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Verse 21, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And so Elijah essentially preaches the gospel to these people. He tells them to follow the one true God. And that is the gospel. Repent of your sin and follow and believe on the one true God. But the people said nothing. All right? The people were confused, deceived. They were following Baal. And this is the situation we see in the world today. In many countries, the people don't know who the one true God is. They worship idols. And even in the church, there are people who are not really worshiping the Lord as they ought to. They are still practicing sin. And so after that, Elijah issues a challenge to the servants of Baal, his very well-known challenge. He said to them, all right, we're going to find out who the one true God is. You who worship Baal, take a bull and cut it into pieces, prepare a sacrifice for your God, but do not set fire to it. And I will do the same thing for the Lord. I will take a bull, I will cut it up, I will prepare a sacrifice for the Lord, but I will not set fire to it. And then First Kings 18, verse 24, skipping to verse 24, Elijah says, Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Now, we're all aware of what Elijah did. But let me ask a question first. Uh, How many disciples of Jesus Christ would like to preach the gospel in this way? You see, Elijah had extreme boldness. It takes extreme boldness to issue this kind of challenge to the lost. The church, however, does not preach the gospel in this way. And the answer is obvious. We do not preach the gospel in this way because we're afraid that after we pray to God, nothing will happen and we'll look really bad. And surely they're not going to believe when the miracle doesn't happen. Now, this is simply the spirit of fear and doubt. I have been around the world and I have seen that 99% of the church has a spirit of fear and doubt when it comes to ministry of this kind and they will not dare preach the gospel in this way. But we are in the last days, and God is restoring the spirit that he gave to Elijah to the church. And it is clear that one component of the spirit that he gave to Elijah is boldness. It takes extreme boldness to proclaim the kingdom of God in this way. Most evangelists will not dare to. What if nothing happens? But we are in the last days. Jesus is about to return. And he is 
in fact, restoring the spirit that he gave to the prophet Elijah to the church. We are going to receive this kind of boldness to proclaim the kingdom of God. And then going back to the scriptures, it says, Then all the people said, What you say is good. You see, these Israelites, they thought it was a great idea. They wanted to know who the one true God was. They, they were sincere. They were open. They wanted to know. But you see, the church, we're afraid. We have a spirit of fear and doubt. The world likes this approach. The world is tired of all the sermons and the preaching. They want to see miracles. And if they see miracles, then maybe they'll believe. But the church, because we have the spirit of fear and doubt, we are afraid to use the approach that Elijah did, even though the world wants to see the miracles. And so the challenge proceeds. We know what happened. First, the servants of Baal, they took a bull, they sacrificed it, and then they began to call upon the name of Baal. And of course, nothing happened. They called upon the Baal for a long time, even cutting themselves with swords until their blood flowed. Still, Baal did not answer. Why didn't he? Well, it's not because he didn't exist. I'm sure Baal was a very powerful principality, let us say. But at that moment, I believe the Lord had his foot on Baal's neck, and Baal could not do a thing. And so they gave up. They failed. And then, verse 36, same chapter, skipping to verse 36. Scripture says, At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Again, it takes extreme boldness to pray this kind of prayer in front of thousands of unbelievers. But this is the kind of boldness that God is restoring to the church during these last days. Verse 38, let's see what happens. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. But God was gracious. He heard the prayer of his prophet, and God answered with fire from heaven. Verse 39, what was the result of this miracle? When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What happened? Well, only after they saw this manifest miracle in response to the prayer of the prophets did they acknowledge that the Lord is God. Before they saw this powerful miracle, they would not repent. Even after three and a half years of drought and famine sent by God, they would not repent. But when they saw this powerful miracle with their own eyes, then they acknowledged the Lord is God. And so, the spirit of Elijah is not simply the spirit of extreme boldness, but it is also the spirit of manifest power. When the spirit of Elijah comes upon us, we will be able to proclaim the kingdom of God with miraculous signs following the preaching of the gospel to confirm that the gospel is true. And so the spirit of Elijah, number one, is the spirit of extreme boldness. Number two, it's the spirit of manifest power that can be seen and experienced. And number three, the spirit of Elijah is the spirit of holiness. Elijah preached repentance from idolatry. And when the spirit of Elijah comes upon us, 
we're going to be preaching a different kind of message. We're going to be preaching repentance from sin. We're going to be preaching obedience to the Lord and living a holy life unto the Lord. Our message will change once the spirit of Elijah comes upon us. Boldness, power, and holiness for the last days. Therefore, when the spirit and power of Elijah appears again during these last days, preceding the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be for the purpose of, number one, there's a twofold purpose. The first purpose, to prepare the church, to prepare God's people for the second coming of Jesus Christ. God's people need to hear the message of repentance to get their house in order to prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ. Because at that time, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and receive what is due us for what we have done while in the body, whether good or bad. So the first purpose of the spirit and power of Elijah will be to prepare the church for the coming of the Messiah. And number two, now this is not necessarily in order of importance, but number two, to enable the church to fulfill the great commission to the Gentiles who never knew the true God. And this is equally important to preparing God's people for the coming of the Messiah. We must fulfill the great commission to the Gentiles, to those who never heard, the Muslims, the Buddhists, the Hindus, those who practice idolatry and witchcraft, who never grew up in the Christian culture. We must fulfill the great commission to the Gentiles as well. And so this will be the twofold purpose of the restoration of the spirit and power of Elijah to the church. And when the spirit of Elijah comes upon us, we will preach the gospel with great boldness, just like Elijah, and also with manifest miraculous power to confirm the truth of the gospel in order that those who hear the message and who see the signs will repent of their sin and turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now let's go to the New Testament. Let's now focus on Jesus himself. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, I submit to you that Jesus himself used the approach of Elijah to prove that he was the Son of God. As a basis for this, let's look at the book of John, chapter 20, beginning with verse 30. John 20, verse 30, New Testament. It says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Now, we know that Jesus performed many miracles, and not all of them are recorded in the book of John. Okay, Now, what was the purpose of all of these miraculous signs? I believe that most of these miraculous signs were, in fact, miraculous healings. Now, why did Jesus perform so many miraculous healings? Was it simply to prove that he was a healer, that he was a miracle worker? Well, let's look at verse 31, very next verse. It says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the primary purpose of these miracles being written in this book is so that we may believe that Jesus, in fact, is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, the only way to the Father, and that by believing in Jesus Christ, we will have eternal life. And so essentially, Jesus performed so many miraculous healings, I submit to you, primarily to prove his identity as the Christ, the Son of God, 
the only way to the Father. And that essentially is the same approach used by Elijah. Elijah used that powerful miracle at Mount Carmel to prove the identity of the one true God. Yes, the Lord, he is God. And Jesus similarly used miraculous signs, miraculous healings especially, to prove that he was in fact the Son of God, the only way to the Father, the only Savior, the Messiah. So let's continue to study now the ministry of Jesus. We know that Jesus had a threefold ministry, excuse me, threefold office, I should say. He was a priest, he was a prophet, and he was a king. Now, of course, Jesus is no longer on earth. Now he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he has left behind on earth something called the church, his body, the body of Christ. And we now continue the work that he began 2,000 years ago. And as such, we have also been given three offices, the same three offices by which we continue his ministry. We have been given a priestly office, we have been given a prophetic office, and we've also been given a kingly office, just like Jesus did. Now, let's look at the priestly office first. Now, in the Old Testament, a priest, especially the high priest, he would offer animal sacrifices to the Lord. And sometimes he would offer the fruit of the land, the incense and so forth. He would offer physical sacrifices unto the Lord. Now, we are now in the New Testament, and as New Testament priests, we no longer offer those same sacrifices to the Lord. But primarily now, our sacrifices are spiritual ones. For example, when we worship God, when we praise Him, we are moving in a priestly office. We are offering spiritual sacrifices to the Lord, sacrifice of praise. When we offer him thanksgiving, when we say, Hallelujah, thank you, Lord, we are moving in a priestly office. We're offering a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord as a priest. Or when we pray, or when we, when we intercede for someone to the Lord, that's also a priestly office. Because prayer is like fragrant incense, which goes up before the Lord. So prayer and intercession and supplication, those are also priestly activities. Whenever we offer something up to the Lord, we are moving in a priestly office. When we give an offering to the Lord, we're moving in a priestly office. I believe the church is very familiar with the priestly office with which we have been entrusted. Now, let's look at the second office, the prophetic office. Now, the prophetic office is very different from the priestly office. In the priestly office, we offer something up to the Lord who is over us. But in the prophetic office, we don't offer anything to the Lord, but we offer something to one another, usually within the body of Christ. We prophesy to one another to build up, to encourage, to teach, to instruct. And so when we're moving in the prophetic office, we are ministering to each other, not to the Lord. So you can say that the prophetic office has a horizontal direction. We're ministering to each other within the body of Christ, whereas the priestly office is directed up. It's horizontal. It's up to the Lord. Now, but I'm here to teach about the third and final office, which is the kingly office. Now, this office is not well known to the body of Christ, and I believe this is the missing office. This is why we are so weak in terms of of evangelism and in terms of signs and wonders. Now, I'm not going to teach about the entire breadth of the kingly office, which I'm sure is very, very broad. 
Instead, I'm going to focus on the restoration of a particular aspect, a narrow aspect of the kingly office to the church. And let me explain to you what I'm talking about. The kingly office uses authority for the purpose of enforcing the rule of the king. What is it that makes a king different from someone who is not a king? Well, a king has authority, and someone who is not a king does not have authority. How does a king enforce his rule? Well, he gives commands to his subjects, and they obey his commands. That's how he enforces the rule of his kingdom. The king uses authority. He exercises authority for the purpose of enforcing his rule. And we are going to learn how to minister with this authority. The kingly office can also be for war and for destroying the works of the enemy. Now, on what is this based? Well, if we look at Israelite kings, in particular, let's look at King David. King David was a man of war. He fought wars against the Canaanites. Now, what was the purpose of these wars? Well, these wars were to fulfill God's promise to the seed of Abraham. God promised Abraham that his seed would occupy the promised land of Canaan. And so when the Israelites eventually entered Canaan, they declared war on the Canaanites and they drove them out. For what purpose? To fulfill God's promise to the seed of Abraham and to Abraham. And so the kingly office is for fulfilling God's promise. It's for fulfilling God's will. It's for establishing God's kingdom on earth, which is what Israel did and which is what we are commanded to do. We are commanded to proclaim the kingdom of God on earth so that people may be saved and become disciples of Jesus Christ and enter into his kingdom. Now here are some characteristics of the kingly office. Number one, authority to command. A king has authority to command. Kings do not ask, they don't beg, they give commands. We're going to learn how to exercise this kind of authority. The second characteristics, true kings are bold and fearless, like King David, bold and fearless. And the third characteristic, kings have actual power to destroy enemies or the works of the enemy. For example, when King David was anointed to become king over Israel, he had military power. He had armies of men, and they were equipped with deadly weapons. They could destroy enemy armies. He had actual military power. Now, of course, I'm not talking about military power tonight, but I am talking about actual power to heal the sick and cast out demons to proclaim the kingdom of God to confirm the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about actual power given by God to his people to heal the sick and cast out demons for the purpose of destroying the works of the enemy on earth in order that people may believe on Jesus Christ. Let me focus in on healing now. The approach to healing that we will take in this basic training will be specific to the task in which we are engaged. Now, let me just say at the very outset that we are not teaching what is commonly known in the church as the gift of healing. Uh, let me repeat, 
I will not be teaching the gift of healing. Uh, there is a difference between the gift of healing and what I will be teaching. Let me just say something about the gift of healing first so that we will understand the difference. The gift of healing is primarily for ministering to sick believers and can be manifest in gatherings of believers. Excuse me. As I said, let me just repeat this. Gift of healing primarily for ministering to believers and therefore can be manifest in gatherings of believers. Now, how do we know this? Well, Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where we learn about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning with verse 4. Scripture says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. Now, verse 7. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Now, notice that the Apostle Paul teaches in verse 7 that all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for the common good. Now, if we understand the context of 1 Corinthians 12, we know that Paul is talking about the common good of the body of Christ, the common good of the church, meaning the gifts of the Holy Spirit are are primarily given for the good of the body of Christ, for building up the body of Christ. For example, verse 8. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. Uh, This is the NIV, by the way. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. So in verse 8, we have two gifts of the Holy Spirit, word of wisdom, word of knowledge. And then in verse 9, Paul says, To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. And so in verse 9, we see gifts of healing. And all nine gifts of the Holy Spirit are for what? Are primarily for the common good of the church, for building up the body of Christ. Therefore, I believe we can conclude that gifts of healing are primarily for ministering to sick believers in the context of building up the body of Christ. To strengthen this argument, let's look at 1 Corinthians 14 now. Chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, verse 12. It says, So it is with you, since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. All right? Primary purpose of gifts is to build up the church. And this is fine and good. Of course, we want to build up the church. However, there is something more foundational, as far as I'm concerned, than the gift of healing for ministering to the church. What am I talking about? I'm talking about healing the sick to demonstrate to the lost that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And when they see the signs, they believe. And so the context of the Elijah challenge is not simply ministering to sick believers in the context of building up the church, although that's fine and good, but our primary context is to heal the sick when we are proclaiming the kingdom of God to the lost. When the lost see the miracles, then their hearts are open to listening to the gospel, to considering Jesus Christ as, in fact, the only way to the Father. And so the context of this basic training is evangelism. It is not primarily building up the body of Christ. And so our task in the basic training is to learn to minister healing in the context of proclaiming the gospel to the lost. And this is just what Christ and his early disciples did. 
when Jesus Christ was here 2,000 years ago, he did not come to build up the body of Christ. There was no body of Christ. Jesus came to save the lost. And that's why he performed so many miracles, primarily to show the lost who he was, the Son of God, the Messiah, so that they would believe on him. And so what we're learning to do in this basic training is to do what Jesus and his early disciples did 2,000 years ago. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this is taken from John 14:12. John 14:12, in which Jesus promises, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. What did Jesus do? 2,000 years ago, Jesus preached the gospel. And to confirm the truth of the gospel, he healed the sick, he cast out demons, he performed miracles. And according to John 14:12, you and I who have faith in him are going to do the same thing. We are going to preach the gospel. We are going to heal the sick and cast out demons as miraculous signs, as a miraculous demonstration that the gospel which we preach is the truth so that sinners will repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so based upon John 14:12, let's examine how Jesus healed the sick after the Holy Spirit came upon him at the Jordan River. Let's find out how Jesus healed the sick, how Jesus cast out demons. In the same way, we will heal the sick. And so we are going to heal the sick and cast out demons in the same way that Jesus did. So we're going to follow John 14:12 closely. We're not only going to do what he did, but we're going to do the works in the way that he did them. So, let's study how Jesus healed the sick. We're not going to study some famous healing evangelist, no. Instead, we're going to study Jesus himself. I believe that is preferable. <coughs> Excuse me again. All right, let's look at Luke chapter 4 beginning with verse 31, Luke 4, verse 31. Let's study how Jesus healed the sick. Scripture says, Then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. Verse 32. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Notice that when the people heard his words, they were astonished. Why? because his word was with authority. The key concept here is authority. Pastor Lyle? Find out, yes. Pardon me for interrupting you there. Uh, we're getting mm-hmm. some bad static on the line. Um, may I have you pause there, and I'm going to dial you right back and see if I can clear that static? Okay. You want uh, me to hang ha- up then? Yeah, are you on a landline, or are you on a, uh, a cordless by chance? I'm on a landline. Okay, yeah, the static just started, so... Stand by here, folks, and we're going to be right back with Pastor Mal. I'm just going to try to clear that up because the messages are too important to be interrupted by the static. So stand by, and we'll be right back with Pastor Mal. Okay. So I'll hang up and wait for your call. Okay, brother. Folks, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Omega Man Radio live program tonight. we got Pastor William Lau of the Elijah Challenge. Uh, He's the worldwide director, founder of the Elijah Challenge. He's doing a basic training one, session one tonight how to move in the authority 
of the Lord Jesus Christ for miracle healing. And uh, we're going to get him back on the line and continue on. Hey, I want to give everybody a uh, basically a, a testimony. You know how uh, many of the brothers have been talking about the need for fasting, and Brother Costello was on the other day and spoke about, uh, you know, and Brother Victor, the call to a 24-hour fast. You know, for many people, it's it's tough to even, you know, do three, four, five days, seven days, and so they say, well, I'm never going to start it. Folks, I completed a one-day fast, and basically you start dinner time to dinner time the next day. So basically just skip breakfast and lunch, and I completed it. And the only reason I'm mentioning that is uh, I want to tell you it was not that bad. And you know what? It's gotten me excited now. And so, you know what? I think that uh, it's time for a call to fasting, and people should try to do a simple fast, supper time to supper time. That's 24 hours. Drink liquids during the day. Try that and see if you don't get the breakthroughs that you're looking for. I just want to interject that. Let's get uh, Pastor Lau back on the line. Hey, Shannon. Pastor Lau, there we go. I think um, the problem is resolved. Let me give it back. Sorry for that interruption. Okay. You want me to start up again? Yes, sir. Okay, here we go. So we're back in Luke 4. Verse 32, when Jesus ministered, when he spoke, his word was with authority, and it astonished the people. Let's find out what kind of authority Jesus had and how he exercised that authority. What we learn so far is that when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at the Jordan River, he was given authority. Okay, verse 33. Now, in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, And he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? What we have here is that while Jesus is ministering, there's a man who becomes demonized, and he begins to cry out and create a disturbance. And we want to see how Jesus handles it. Now, before we do, I want to ask the following question. What might a typical believer do in such a situation? Let's say there's a typical believer sitting in church, and suddenly the person sitting right next to him becomes demonized and begins to growl and cry out and create a scene. What would the typical believer do? Well, some believers would get up and run. Let's be honest. However, we know that running is not very spiritual. God might not be pleased. And so some of us, at least, we know better than to get up and run. We know that we should do something spiritual in such a situation, Some of us would probably pray to God in such a situation if a person becomes demonized. Praying to God is a very spiritual thing. And if the believer is a charismatic believer, they might pray in a certain language known as tongues. All right? And there may be some believers, they might say the following. They would say, Father, in the name of Jesus, we command this demon to come out. I believe there are quite a number of people in your listening audience who would say that. Father, in the name of Jesus, we command this demon to come out. Now, what might a scripturally well-trained believer do? Well, the answer to that is the scripturally well-trained believer would do exactly what Jesus did. Let's find out what Jesus did. Verse 35. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet. 
and come out of him. All right. What did Jesus do? Jesus spoke directly at the man. Jesus rebuked the demon and said to the demon, be quiet and come out of him. So let me ask a few questions here. Did Jesus pray for this man, as many of us might do in such a situation? The answer is no. Jesus did not pray to the Father for this man. Jesus spoke directly to the demon and rebuked the demon, commanding him to be quiet and to come out. A second question. Did Jesus say, Father, we command this demon to be quiet and to come out of him? No, Jesus did not address the name of his Father, not at all. Jesus directed his words completely at the demon. Uh, do you think Jesus closed his eyes when he performed this action? And the answer is no. Why should Jesus close his eyes? He's not praying. He's not speaking to his father. He's speaking to a demon, an enemy. When you're confronting an enemy, it is not a good idea to close your eyes. No, Jesus did not close his eyes. Fourth question. Was there any priestly action directed to the father here? Was there any kind of prayer, any kind of thanksgiving, any kind of praise directed to his father? And the answer is no. There's no priestly action at all directed to the father. This action performed by Jesus was 100% a kingly action. He commanded this demon to be quiet and to leave. Jesus exercised his authority over the demon by commanding him to be quiet and to come out. This was a purely kingly action. And so what we see is that Jesus did not minister to this man in the way that we have traditionally been taught. Jesus did not pray for this man. And what was the result of this action? Well, let's go back to the scriptures. It says, And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so the result of this was a miracle. The man was set free. Now, question, how did Jesus do the miracle? It is clear he did not do it through prayer, but he did the miracle by exercising the authority given to him by his Father. When the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at the Jordan River, his Father gave him authority over demons. And authority is not exercised by praying or through prayer. No. Authority is exercised by commanding. It's a very simple concept, but sometimes Christians have a difficult time understanding it. Let me give you a very simple illustration about authority. Let's say you have a pet dog. Your dog is under your authority. He lives at your pleasure. He's your pet. You're the master. Let's say you want your dog to sit. How would you make your dog sit? Would you pray to God? Would you ask Jesus for help? And the answer, of course, is no. That's silly. We wouldn't pray to God, asking God to make our dog sit. God has given us authority over our dog. And so if we want our dog to sit, we stand up, we look at him, and we say, sit. And he sits because he's under our authority. So authority is not exercise by prayer. As spiritual as it is, authority is not exercised by praying, but rather by commanding that which is under your authority. Going back to the scriptures, verse 36. 
Then they were all amazed, and they spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is. The people were amazed at his word. Why? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. You see, these people believe that only God in heaven had power and authority over unclean spirits. And technically that is true. Only God in heaven, the one true God, has power and authority over demons. But Jesus was a man. He had flesh and blood just like you and me. And this human being called Jesus Christ, he had power and authority over demons like God himself, such that he could command the unclean spirits, and they would obey him. And so when Jesus was baptized in the Holy Spirit at the Jordan River, he received authority and power over demons from his Father. And with that power and authority, he could command unclean spirits, and they would obey him. He did not need to pray to his Father. Now, I am not at all saying that Jesus never prayed. Of course Jesus prayed. Sometimes he would pray all night. He prayed much. But I am saying that there were specific occasions on which he did not pray, but rather commanded. And the church generally is confused on this issue. They don't know when to pray, when to command. Sometimes when they should be praying, they're commanding, and when they're commanding, they should be praying instead. And so we're going to study this very matter. And so, summarizing, when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus... He received God's authority over demons, which he exercised by issuing commands to demons. And so, instead of focusing on what is called the anointing, quote-unquote, given to us, let's focus on the authority and power the Lord gives us. Today, there's a lot of emphasis on something called the anointing. I don't believe it's very useful to talk about anointing. I think we should focus on the power and authority which the Lord gives us. It is much more useful and, in fact, more scriptural to focus on authority instead of anointing, as we shall see later. We want to stay as close to scripture as possible. Going back to the scriptures, verse 37, and the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And so Jesus became well known because of these miracles. And that's why we want to learn how to perform these miracles because people will come to know about Jesus Christ. So we see how Jesus dealt with demons. He did not pray for the demonized people, but he would rebuke and command demons to leave. And that makes sense, at least on an intellectual level. Demons, of course, are intelligent. They have intelligence, although they have no bodies. And so when you rebuke them in Jesus' name, they hear, they understand, and if they are under your authority, they will obey your commands. That makes sense. But how did Jesus deal with purely physical infirmities? See, not all infirmities are caused by demons. Some of them are. Many of them are not. How did Jesus deal with the purely physical infirmity where no demon was involved? Well, we know that as believers, we have authority to cast demons out of afflicted people, yes. But we have been taught that if someone has a purely physical infirmity, that's very different. We can only pray for him and trust God to heal him. Why? Well, let's say someone has uh, a fever. Now, can we rebuke the fever in Jesus' name? Can we command it to leave? 
And we assume that, no, we cannot. You see, a fever is not intelligent. It's not a demon. It's simply a physiological reaction in our bodies. And so you cannot rebuke it. You can't talk to it. It's not going to hear. It's not going to understand. It won't obey you. And so if someone has a purely physical infirmity, no, you can't, uh, you can't command it with authority. No, we can only pray for him and trust God to heal him. Now, this is what is conventionally taught in the church. At least if you go to church long enough, this is what we end up believing. Let's find out whether or not this is true, this conventional wisdom in the church. Let's see, in fact, how Jesus dealt with a purely physical infirmity. Let's go to verse 38, same chapter, Luke chapter 4. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. All right, this is a very good test case. Simon's mother-in-law, she's not demonized. She's, she's just sick. She has a high fever. They asked Jesus to help her. Let's find out how Jesus helps her. Verse 39. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever. He bent over her and rebuked the fever. Jesus did not pray for Peter's mother-in-law. No, he did not. Did Jesus say, Father, we rebuke this fever? Is that what Jesus said? No, Jesus did not address the Father at all. Jesus addressed the fever directly. He rebuked the fever. Just as he had rebuked the demon, now he rebukes the fever. We don't know exactly what he says, but I believe Jesus said something like, Leave, go to the fever. Uh, did Jesus close his eyes when he rebuked the fever? Well, no, there's no reason why he should. He's not praying. And even if he did pray, we don't know that he closed his eyes. The Bible doesn't command us to close our eyes when we pray. It's simply a tradition. So Jesus didn't close his eyes. He's rebuking a fever. There's no reason why he should close his eyes. Was there any priestly action directed to the Father? Was there any praise or worship or thanksgiving any any kind of action directed up to the Father? No, there was not. This was a purely kingly action. He rebuked the fever. He spoke to the fever and commanded it to leave, just as he rebuked the demon earlier. And what was the result of this action? Well, Scripture says, and it left her. This fever obeyed his command and left the woman she was healed. According to these scriptures, Jesus did few of the things that we traditionally do when ministering to the physically infirm. When we minister to the physically infirm, usually we pray, or we might even say, Father, we command this person to be healed. We might close our eyes, and we might say, Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, and then minister to the person According to these scriptures, Jesus didn't do any of those things. When the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, he received authority over both demons and physical infirmities. Both were under his authority when the Holy Spirit came upon him. Therefore, he could issue commands to both, to both demons and to physical infirmities, even though they're not the same. As an example... Let's say we have a pet dog. How do we make him sit? We issue commands. We say, sit. 
And let's say we have young children that we're raising, and we want to give them, we want them to do something. We want little Johnny to sit down and eat his dinner. How do we do it? We give him a command. We say, Johnny, sit down, eat your dinner. And so we use the same approach to both our pet dog and our child. Now, of course, our dogs and our children are very different in nature. They're not the same. They're very different. However, since both are under our authority, we can give commands to both, and both will obey our commands. So that's how we understand how Jesus ministered healing to Peter's mother-in-law. He had authority over the fever given to him by his father. He wanted the fever to go, and so he commanded it to go, and since it was under his authority, it obeyed. So summarizing, let me say this. When the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, he received healing power from his Father. That healing power was resident within him. When he laid hands on the infirm, the healing power flowed into them to heal them. According to one of the other Gospels, Jesus also took Peter's mother-in-law by the hand and helped her to get up. He touched her hand. And when he touched her hand, what happened? Healing power flowed into Peter's mother-in-law, and she was healed. I believe that's from Mark. You recall the time when there was a woman with the bleeding who came up from behind Jesus and touched his cloak. What happened? When she touched his cloak, she was healed. What happened at that moment? Jesus felt power leave his body. Where did it go? Into the woman. And so that's generally why Jesus would touch the sick, why he would lay hands on the sick, so that healing power would flow into the sick person from him to heal them. And he received that healing power from his Father when the Holy Spirit came upon him. Luke 4, verse 40. Just to reinforce about the laying on of hands that Jesus performed, Luke 4, verse 40. When the sun was setting the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. So we know that very often, although not always, Jesus would lay hands on the sick in order to heal them. And what happened when he laid hands on the sick? Healing power would flow into the sick person and heal them. Verse 41. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. So according to verse 41, Jesus would rebuke demons. He would command them to be quiet and to leave. He would exercise authority over them by issuing commands to them. That's how he dealt with demons. He exercised his authority over them by giving commands. And according to verse 40 above, he would lay hands on the sick to heal them. So we see that in the ministry of Jesus to the sick and the oppressed, often he would do these two things. Sometimes one, sometimes the other, and sometimes both. He would lay hands on the sick, and he would exercise his authority by giving commands. When Jesus laid his hands on the infirm, healing power flowed from Jesus to heal infirmities. Now this power, in the Greek it's called dunamis, dunamis. And this power is different from authority. Authority in the Greek is exousia. Power and authority are different. Authority is for issuing commands to those things which are under your authority. And power 
healing power here, which is dunamis, that's what is transferred when we lay hands on the sick. Healing power is transferred. Now, again, this healing power was likely given to Jesus when the Holy Spirit came upon him at the Jordan River. Now, Jesus often laid hands on the sick to heal them, although not in every case. He was also known to heal the infirm at a distance. And later on, at the end of this teaching, we are going to minister healing to people with heart conditions at a distance over the radio. So if you know someone with a heart condition, please prepare that person to receive ministry. If, if a listener or one of you listeners knows someone with a heart condition, oh, at around uh, 10.45 or so Eastern Standard Time, we are going to minister over the radio at a distance to people with heart conditions and I believe God is going to perform some wonderful healings. And so we're going to do this later on in this program, and then we will study it if we have a chance to do session two of the Elijah Challenge basic training. A few more of these, and then we're going to take a break. Luke 5, verse 12. Look at Luke 5. Beginning with verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy, now, leprosy is not necessarily a demonic condition. It is a horrible skin condition. Let's see how Jesus ministered to this man. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Verse 13, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Notice what Jesus did. Jesus laid hands on the man. Jesus touched his man. For what purpose? In order for the healing power, the dunamis, to flow into the man to heal him. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Notice what Jesus spoke. It was not a prayer. But Jesus spoke a command directly to the man to be clean. Jesus did not say, Father, we command this man to be clean. No, he did not address the Father at all. Jesus addressed the leper. Jesus did not close his eyes. He was not praying. There was no priestly action directed to the Father at all. There was no hallelujah be clean. There was no thank you, Father, be clean. There was no priestly action at all. This was purely a kingly action, a command issued with authority. And what was the result of this action? Immediately, the leprosy left him. We can say that the leprosy heard the command and obeyed. This is the result when you exercise authority, which is given by God. One more, Matthew 12, verse 9. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Skipping to verse 13. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. Now, was this a prayer? No, Jesus is not praying. He's speaking directly to the man and commanding him to stretch out his hand. Jesus did not say, Father, we command this man to stretch out his hand. He did not address his father, and it's clear Jesus did not close his eyes. There was no priestly action directed to the Father at all. There was no prayer, praise, thanksgiving of any kind. This was purely a kingly action. Stretch out your hand. And what was the result? So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. And to let you know that these miracles are still happening, there was a brother in Canada whom I trained. His name is Jim Hathaway. 
And after he was trained, he went to the Philippines for mission trips. And on these mission trips in the Philippines, he has seen stroke victims healed in this very same way. He will lay hands on them, and then he will say, stretch out their hand, and he will see them stretch out their hands. And it's, he tells me it's like a, a flower blossoming, blooming right before his eyes as the people's arms go out. So what do we conclude? Well, it's clear that Jesus simply did not minister to the infirm the way that we do today. And what do we conclude? Is it better to minister healing according to our traditions, or is it better to do it the way that Jesus did? I believe we can all agree that it's better to follow Jesus rather than our traditions. Uh, with that, let's take a break, Shannon. Amen. And Pastor Lau, um, I uh, was just informed in the last hour that uh, David Wilkerson of the Times Square Church has died today. Oh. He was involved in a car accident today in Texas that took his life. Oh. And um, oh. our prayers go out to him and his uh, family. You know, brother, that's the uh, third uh, saint of God that I've seen get called home this month. My uh, my grandmother, a uh, great lady of the Lord, uh, died Two weeks ago, we had uh, Pastor mm. Charles Holtzhauser, who had been on this show many times. Uh, he died the same day. And, mm. uh, of course, David Wilkerson today. You know, brother, I think there's a fruit gathering going on. Mm. I don't have any other word for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great loss for us, but it is a fruit gathering at the same time. You know. Amen. Lord you know, calling his people home. He is. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, folks, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. So, again, what a uh, what a uh, sad piece of news today, but uh, he, he's with the Lord right now, so praise yes. God. Yes. We're going to take uh, about a five-minute break, and then we're going to be back, and we're going to continue on. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to a live program on Mega Man Radio. We've got Pastor Evangelist Missionary William Lau of the Elijah Challenge. Website is theelijahchallenge.org. Pastor Lau, is there any other contact information you'd like to give out? And also, would you announce uh, any upcoming dates that you have for the Elijah Challenge? Oh, certainly, yes. We are having uh, the basic training in San Antonio, Texas. That's next month, which is May, on the 5th and the 6th. That's a Thursday and a Friday. Uh, if people are interested, they can go to our website, which is www.theelijahchallenge.org. And uh, at the home page on the left, click on Schedule of Basic Training, and then they can see the exact dates. Uh, there's no registration fee, but there are no details mentioned in the website. So if they want more information, they can email me directly. Let me give them my contact information. Okay, my email, this is my personal email. It's uh, Elijah003 at gmail.com. Once again, Elijah003 at gmail.com. If anyone wants more details about that training event, just send me an email. Or for any other reason, if they want to contact me, please use that email address. And I'm Praise sure God. More than welcome to join us. Amen. And we'll give that information out again several times throughout the show tonight, folks. Uh, I would encourage everybody to go to the website, support the Elijah Challenge. And if you're tuning in tonight, we're doing the uh, basic training, one session one. 
We're going to take about a five, six-minute break, and we'll be back and uh, continue on with the second hour of tonight's program. God bless everyone for tuning in, and we'll be back after this break. All right, folks, let's get uh, Pastor William Lau back on the line. Uh, he is with the Elijah Challenge, website theelijahchallenge.org, and we're doing the Elijah Challenge Basic Training 1, Session 1 tonight. Pastor Lau, do I have you back? Yes, I'm right here. Praise God. God bless you, brother. Uh, we wanted to uh, give everybody a few extra minutes, get back in, and uh, the microphone is yours, my friend. Okay. Let's uh, resume where we left off before. We know that Jesus did not pray for the sick. We know that Jesus was given power and authority by his Father over disease and demons, so he did not need to pray for the sick. He healed the sick. And this is actually not a surprise to any believer. We all know that Jesus could heal the sick. The problem is that Jesus is no longer here on earth to heal the sick. He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. That's the problem. He's no longer here. So now, who does the work that he did when he was on earth? And clearly the answer is the church, the body of Christ. Our head is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And his body has been left behind on earth. That's you and me. That's the church. And we continue what he began 2,000 years ago. We fulfill the Great Commission. And this is in accordance with John 14, 12, in which Jesus says, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. What did Jesus do? Well, he preached the gospel. He healed the sick to confirm the, the truth of the gospel. He cast out demons. He made disciples. He actually did not pray for the sick. Jesus never prayed for the sick. He did not need to, because he had power and authority to heal the sick. Therefore, according to John 14:12, what are we going to do? We are going to preach the gospel as Jesus did. We are going to heal the sick as Jesus did for the same purpose of confirming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are going to cast out demons as Jesus did, and we are going to make disciples as Jesus did. So do not just pray for the sick, heal the sick as Jesus did. I'm not saying we should not pray for the sick. Not at all. Of course, go ahead, pray for the sick, but after you pray for them, you can lay hands on them and heal them as Jesus did. Now, this is all well and good, but where in the Bible does it specifically teach that we have been given any authority to heal as Jesus did? Where does it say? Well, let's turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 and verse 1. It says, When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. When he had called the twelve, and these were the apostles, what did he do? He gave them power and authority to do what? To drive out all demons and to cure diseases. So clearly, Jesus gave this power and authority to the twelve apostles. And what was the purpose of Jesus giving them this power and authority? Verse 2, he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God. And so this is important. The primary purpose for which this power and authority is given is so that we can preach the kingdom of God to the lost. It is primarily for evangelism. 
for the Great Commission. Now, I left out the tail end of verse 2. Let me read verse 2 again, this time in its entirety. He sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now, did Jesus send them out to preach the kingdom of God and to pray for the sick? No, he did not. If you go through the four Gospels, you will not find a single instance where Jesus commanded his disciples to pray for the sick. It is not there in any of the four Gospels. When he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God, he commanded them to heal the sick. Now, how many disciples actually heal the sick in the way that Jesus did? I would have to say very, very few. In verse 2, he gave the disciples two commands. Number one, preach the kingdom of God. Number two, heal the sick. Now, are these two commands still valid to present-day disciples? I would believe most of us in the listening audience would say, yes, these two commands are still valid. And I believe many of our listeners have indeed preached the kingdom of God to the lost. But how many of us have obeyed that second command in verse 2, to heal the sick as he did? I would have to say very, very few. And so what we find is that most disciples have disobeyed the Lord's command to heal the sick when they are preaching the kingdom of God. It may sound ridiculous, but we have in fact disobeyed that command. We don't heal the sick. We mostly pray for the sick. And so what should we do? I believe we should repent. God commands us to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And we say, okay, God, we will preach the kingdom of God, but healing the sick? No, that's your job. You heal the sick. That's not very scriptural. Jesus gave them power and authority to heal the sick. Then he sent them out to do both, to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So it's time for us to repent of our disobedience and then to learn how to heal the sick as Jesus taught and commanded the twelve when he sent them out. So this power and authority are primarily for the purpose of preaching the kingdom of God to the lost. Therefore, it is not to be understood as a magic formula to be used in healing the sick whenever we would like. Whenever we feel like it, we just use this formula and the people will be healed. No, do not understand it as a formula. God is sovereign, and this is to be used for his purposes. He is sovereign. However, as we shall see later, it can be used in ministering healing to infirm believers as well. And so we don't want to look upon this as a formula, but when the context is evangelism, it does work. And when it is God's will to heal a believer, we can also use this approach. Uh, if we have a session two or session three of the training, we can study James chapter five, in which the Lord teaches us how to minister sick believers in the context of church. So Jesus did not command his disciples to pray for the sick when he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God. He didn't tell them to pray for the sick. Rather, he commanded them to heal the sick, as he did. But why is it that most believers today would rather pray for the sick? Well, it's quite simple. What's the difference between praying for the sick and healing the sick, as Jesus did? Which one is easier? Well, I would, I would have to say uh, praying for the sick 
is probably much easier than healing the sick as Jesus did. And why? Well, let's look at the meaning of praying for the sick. When you pray for the sick, essentially, you are asking the Father in the name of Jesus to heal someone. Now, if after you pray the person is healed, you say, praise God. If after you pray, God does not heal the person, then you say, well, praise God, it's not God's will. What I'm getting at is that it is impossible to fail when you pray for the sick. When you pray for the sick, you're asking God to heal. You're not the one doing the healing. It's up to God to heal or not to heal according to his will. So it is impossible to fail when you pray for the sick because the results are entirely up to God. You're just praying. You're not doing the healing. And so it's very easy to pray. It's impossible to fail when you pray for the sick. But healing the sick as Jesus did, ooh, <laughs> that's doing exactly what Jesus did, performing miracles, opening the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf. When you try to do that, it is very possible to fail. In fact, I believe... Many believers have actually tried to heal the sick as Jesus did by using commands and have failed. We've been burnt so many times, we have failed so many times that we don't even try to heal the sick anymore as Jesus taught and commanded his disciples. Now we're just praying for the sick instead and leaving the results up to God according to his time and according to his will. The problem with this is that God did not, Jesus never told us to pray for the sick in any of the Gospels when he sent out his disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God. He commanded them to heal the sick. So we need to find out why is it that often we fail to heal the sick when we're preaching the Gospel to the lost. Why is it that we fail? We need to find out why we fail so that we will be able to heal the sick and thus obey the Lord's command to heal the sick as we proclaim the kingdom of God to the lost. And we're going to find out why we fail a little bit later in this program. Let's look at Luke 9, verse 6 now. Luke 9, verse 6. So they, meaning the twelve, they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. So these twelve, they actually obeyed the command of the Lord. They went out village to village, preaching the gospel, and not praying for sick people everywhere, but healing people everywhere. This is what the church should be doing today, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere as confirmation of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that people will repent and put their faith in Jesus. That's what the Twelve did, and this is what the church today should be doing. So let's learn how to heal the sick effectively as Jesus taught and commanded. Preaching the gospel and healing the sick are a single package. Notice in this verse 6 that Jesus sent them out to do two things. And they did those two things. They preached the gospel and they healed the sick. They are a single package. Why? Because many people want to see the evidence that what we are saying is the truth. Many people, they want to know, they want to see a miracle, and the miracle is evidence that the gospel is true. And God knows that this is the nature of human beings. We want to see before we believe. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. God knows that, and that's why God commands us 
to heal the sick, and to proclaim the kingdom of God. So we're going to learn how to obey these two commands. They go together. They are a single package. And actually, healing the sick is no more miraculous than getting, than getting people saved. In fact, the greatest miracle of all is when you preach the gospel to someone and they accept Jesus Christ unto eternal life. That's the greatest miracle of all. And healing the sick, that's not as important as someone accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I would have to say healing the sick is an easier miracle than saving someone through the preaching of the gospel. So if we can preach the gospel effectively, surely we can learn how to heal the sick successfully. Both of them are miraculous actions which God commands us to do. And if we study scripture closely, we will find out how to heal the sick effectively. We study the scriptures to learn how to preach the gospel effectively, as Jesus did. We study how Jesus preached the gospel to the woman at the well in Samaria, and we should. Why shouldn't we also study how Jesus healed the sick, so that we can heal the sick as he did? They are a single package, preaching the gospel and healing the sick. The miraculous healings confirm the truth of the message of the gospel to the lost. Now, let's ask the question, what if we are not an apostle? In Luke 9, we see that Jesus gave this power and authority to the twelve, and they were the big boys, they were the apostles. Most of us are not apostles. We are simply ordinary disciples, nameless, faceless disciples. Do we have any of this power and authority? Well, let's look at Luke 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord, the Lord appointed 70 others. Now, these 70 others, they were not apostles. They were all disciples, committed disciples, just like, just like you and me. Let's see what he did. He sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. So what did Jesus do? He called 70 disciples and then he sent them out. To do what? Well, obviously, to proclaim the kingdom of God. The question we want to ask is, when he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, did he give them any of this power and authority over disease and demons, which he gave to the twelve apostles? Let's find out. Let's skip to verse 9 of the same chapter, and let's see what Jesus commanded these 70 disciples to do. Verse 9. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God is near you. Jesus commanded the 70 to heal the sick, which obviously means that he gave them a measure of power and authority to heal the sick when he sent them out. And notice, notice the order of these two commands. Jesus said, heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God is near you. I'm not saying the order of these two commands is extremely important, but it is scriptural. Even before you proclaim the gospel, you can heal the sick first. Why? Because when the people see the miracles, then their hearts are open to listening to what you have to say. If you start out with the gospel immediately, some people, they don't want to hear it. They're not interested. But if you start with, do you want to be healed? Ah, most people will say yes, and then you heal them in Jesus' name, and when they're healed, then their hearts are open to listening to what you have to say. Now, what do we conclude from verse 9? We conclude that authority over diseases was also given to the 70 disciples who were not apostles, 
when they were sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God. So this authority is not only given to apostles, but are also given to disciples as well, disciples who are sent out. So those disciples who are not apostles have also been given a measure of authority over disease and demons. I do not believe that disciples have the same measure of authority as apostles. Apostles have a very high degree of authority. In Matthew 10, Jesus commanded them even to raise the dead. They had a very high degree of authority. And I don't think that every disciple has that same level of authority. And so I want to stress that disciples who are not apostles have been given a measure of authority over disease and demons. But the good news is that if you use whatever measure of authority you are given to heal the sick for the purpose of proclaiming the kingdom of God, God will know that you are trustworthy and that he will give you more authority. You can grow in this authority. It's like a talent. If you are faithful with a little, he will give you more. Now, I want to I want to add that we have not been given all authority like God himself. I do not believe that believers have all authority. Only God has all authority. And we have been given a measure of authority to do what God wants us to do. Now, let's skip to verse 17, same chapter, Luke chapter 10. Let's see what happened when the 70 went out. The 70 returned with joy, verse 17, and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So, Did Jesus also give to the 70 authority over demons? And obviously, the answer is yes. So what is the conclusion that we draw from this? Well, we know that the 12 were given power and authority over disease and demons when Jesus sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And we know that the 70 were also given a measure of this power and authority when they were sent out. So we conclude that a measure of authority over disease and demons was given to whomever the Lord sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God to the lost. When the Lord sends us out to proclaim the kingdom of God, he gives us proper equipment and weapons to get the job done. He gives us authority and power over demons and diseases with which we confirm the message of the gospel to the lost. When we are sent out to preach the gospel, God gives us this power and authority. And every disciple of Jesus Christ is in fact sent out to the world as a witness of Jesus Christ. We may conclude that every disciple of Jesus Christ therefore has been given a measure at the very least, a measure of this power and authority to heal the sick and cast out demons. And before I go on, let me just say something very briefly. What we are teaching tonight is authority over disease. We're not teaching the gift of healing. Gift of healing is different. There are four major differences between the two. And the first one is difference in time. The authority to heal was given before the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. Now, the gift of healing was available to the church at the very earliest on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, bringing the gifts of the Holy Spirit in addition to other things, of course. But the authority to heal was given well before the day of Pentecost. So there's a difference in the time in which these two things were given. They're not the same. 
gift of healing is different from the authority to heal. Second difference is a difference in function. The authority was given primarily for proclaiming the gospel to the lost. But the gift of healing was given primarily to build up the body of Christ by ministering healing to sick believers. Difference, a definite difference in function between the gift and the authority. Third difference, there's a difference in frequency. Every believer, every disciple was given this authority, while not every believer is given the gift of healing. I believe the gift of healing is more advanced than the gift, excuse me, than the authority to heal. It's more, more advanced, more special, shall we say. Whereas the authority to heal is more basic. We should learn the authority to heal first. It's more basic, more foundational. And fourthly, there's a difference in operation between the two. The operation of the authority to heal is a kingly action. You give a command. It's a kingly action. Whereas the operation of the gift of healing, by contrast, is more of a priestly action. It might involve prayer or worship, or it could even be a prophetic action. And so, the authority to heal is a kingly action, but the gift of healing is more of a priestly or a prophetic action. Now, let's find out why is it that we experience failure to heal the sick. I'm sure many of us have tried to heal the sick in Jesus' name, not just pray for the sick, but have actually tried to heal someone in Jesus' name, and usually they fail. Let's find out why. Now, Christ's disciples themselves experienced failure to heal the sick on one occasion, at least. And we're going to study that, that incident in depth. It's found in Matthew 17, verse 14. Let's turn to that right now, shall we? Matthew seventeen fourteen. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. They failed to heal the boy. They didn't pray for the boy. They tried to heal the boy, but they failed. They failed to perform the miracle of healing. Look what Jesus said to them. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Now, notice that Jesus is very displeased with his disciples, and he rebukes them very harshly. He calls them unbelieving and perverse. And he says, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Now, why is Jesus so harsh with his disciples? I mean, what, they did, what did they do wrong? Did they rob a bank? Did they commit adultery? Did they worship an idol? No. They simply failed to drive a demon out of a boy. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes them harshly. He's disappointed. Now, if this happened today, let's say a believer fails to perform a miracle of healing or deliverance, would a pastor, would a leader respond in such a way and rebuke the believer for being unbelieving and perverse? How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? No, no pastor, no Christian leader would ever rebuke a disciple in this way for simply failing 
to perform a miracle of deliverance or healing. But Jesus' response was so harsh. Now, we want to try to understand this. First of all, why is it that no pastor, no believer, would ever say such a thing to a believer who simply failed to drive a demon out of a person? Well, the primary reason is our theology. Our theology is the following. Only God can perform miracles. Only God can heal the sick. Only God can drive out demons. And so, if a believer fails to perform the miracle, we cannot blame that believer, because only God has this power and authority. Therefore, we do not expect disciples, believers, to be able to perform these miracles of healing and deliverance. We don't expect it because of our theology. Our theology tells us only God has that power and authority. Well, Jesus' theology was very different. Jesus expected, and not only expected, he demanded his disciples to do the miracle. And when he learned that they had failed to drive out the demon, he was very disappointed and he rebuked them harshly. So Jesus' theology on this subject differs dramatically from the theology of the church. The church doesn't expect believers to be able to do these things. Jesus does. So whose theology is correct? The church or Jesus Christ? Obviously, Jesus is correct. And so we need to revisit our theology on this matter. Let's try to understand how could Jesus possibly expect and demand his disciples to do the miracle. Today, it doesn't seem reasonable that he would expect and demand his disciples to be able to drive the demon out. But actually, it's very easy to understand. There are three reasons. Number one, they were his disciples, and they were being trained to do what he did. Jesus would go from place to place. And what was he doing when he went from place to place? Well, he was preaching the gospel. He was healing the sick. He was casting out demons. And his disciples followed him from place to place, and they were watching him, and they were observing him, and they were learning to do what he did. And I believe Jesus was teaching them to do what he did, including healing the sick and casting out demons. Jesus was teaching them to do what he did. Reason number two, he had given them authority to heal the sick and cast out demons. We just read from Luke chapter 9, verse 1, and Luke 10, verse 9, that Jesus had given them authority over disease and demons when he sent them out. And so they had the authority to drive the demon out. Reason number three, he had sent them out and commanded them to heal the sick. Luke 10, verse 9, Jesus commanded the 70, heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. So based upon these three reasons, Jesus was completely justified and reasonable in his disappointment when he heard that his disciples had failed to heal the boy. His anger, his disappointment was completely justified. Now, the relevant question now is, does Jesus expect the church today? Does Jesus expect disciples today? Does, does Jesus expect you and me today 
to heal the sick and drive out demons when we are preaching the gospel to the lost? Does he command it? Does he demand it? Does he expect it? And if we want to be faithful to Scripture, we would have to say, yes, he does. Yes, he does. And when we fail, is he pleased? Maybe not. So it it would behoove the church today to learn how to do these things that Jesus commands us. Healing the sick, casting out demons in the context of the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Let's go back to this incident now in Matthew chapter um, chapter 17. Then Jesus says, bring the boy here to me. Jesus obviously frustrated with them and he says, okay, you can't do it. I'll do it. Bring him here to me. Verse 18, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed from that moment. So Jesus performs the miracle. Now, how did he do it? Did Jesus pray for this boy? The answer is no, he did not pray for the boy. How did he do it? He rebuked the demon. He spoke directly to the demon and commanded it to leave, and the demon obeyed. Jesus used authority to perform the miracle. Verse 19, Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? This is the key question. Why did they fail? Why do we fail when we try to heal the sick and cast out demons? Why is it that we fail? We're going to find out. Now, before we do, let's look at four reasons that the church traditionally gives to explain why the sick are not healed when we minister to them. Very often, when we minister to sick people, nothing happens. How do we explain this? How does the church explain it? Well, The most common, the most popular reason is it's not God's will. That's what we always say when nothing happens, when the person is not healed. We say, say, well, it's not God's will. Number two, we will say it's not God's time. Uh, God is teaching us patience. It's not God's time. That's how we explain why people are not healed. Reason number three. We will say the sick person has sin. That is why the person was not healed. The sick person has sin. And the fourth reason, this is the charismatic favorite. The sick person lacks faith. The reason why the person is not healed, well, it's their own fault. They lack faith in God. That's why God did not heal them. Now, these are the four standard reasons that the church gives to explain why sick people are not healed. It's not God's will. It's not God's time. The sick person has sinned. The sick person lacks faith. Now, I am not saying that none of these reasons are valid. I'm not saying that at all. Some of these reasons might sometimes apply. For example, when a believer fails to confess his sin. Let me give you an example. Let's say after church on a Sunday, a man comes up to you. He's a believer. He's a church member. And he says to you, well, please lay hands on me and minister to me. Uh, I can barely breathe. So you you reach out your hand. You want to lay your hands on his chest to minister to him. And as you get close to him, you smell cigarette smoke on his breath. And you suddenly realize, hey, maybe he's still smoking. And so you confront him. You say, brother, are you still smoking? 
And he says, yes, I am. And you say, well, you have to repent. You better stop. You're sinning against God's holy temple. And the brother says to you, just shut up and mind your own business. Just lay hands on me and minister me, minister to me, please. Now, is God going to heal that person? The answer is no. It's not God's will to heal that person because that person does not want to repent and confess his sin. So I am not at all saying that those reasons are not valid. Now, however, please note the following. When we say it's not God's will, it's not God's time to explain why some sick person was not healed, who are we blaming essentially? We are essentially blaming God. We're blaming God. We say, hey, it's, what can you do? It's not God's will. It's not, God, it's not God's time. The problem is God in heaven above. We're essentially blaming God in so many words. When we use the third and fourth reason, when we say, well, it's because the sick person has sin. It's because the sick person lacks faith. And we explain the lack of healing using those reasons. Then whom are we blaming essentially? Essentially, we are blaming the sick person. Now, this is very convenient. When the person is not healed, we either blame God or we blame the sick person. It's very convenient of the church to do that. It's very typical. It's just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We're finding someone else to blame. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the snake. They don't want to take personal responsibility. And we're doing that today. We rarely blame ourselves when the miracle does not take place. When we minister to someone and nothing happens, we never say, oh, it's my fault, I'm so sorry. We never say that. We usually say, well, it's not God's will, not God's time, or maybe you lack faith, maybe you've got sin, you need to repent. We almost never blame ourselves. But what reason did Jesus give in this particular situation to explain why the miracle did not take place? In this situation, why was the boy not healed? Was it because the boy had sin? Well, I'm sure the boy did have sin, but was that the reason why the boy was not healed? Let's find out what reason Jesus gave to explain why the boy was not healed. Verse 20, verse 20, same chapter. He replied, because you have so little faith. Because you have so little faith. The King James says, because of your unbelief. So whose fault was it that the miracle did not take place? Was it because it wasn't God's will, not God's time to heal the boy? No. Was it because the boy lacked faith or had sin? No. It was because the disciples had so little faith. They had unbelief. That's why the boy was not set free. And so what do we learn from this? We should not always blame God or the sick person when nothing happens. Let's not always blame God or the sick person. Sometimes, and maybe often, the fault is ours. We disciples have little faith. We disciples have unbelief. So let's focus on this now. Let's focus on this unbelief. Let's find out what did Jesus mean, because you have so little faith. What kind of faith did they lack such that they failed to drive out the demon? Let's find out what kind of faith they lacked. 
Let's keep reading. Before we do, let me add something. In some cases, when the person is not healed, it could be because we lack sufficient authority to heal a certain infirmity. We have found that certain infirmities are not difficult to heal. They're minor. Some infirmities are much more difficult to heal, like someone who is born without eyeballs. That's a major infirmity. It takes far greater authority to heal that than to heal someone who has a headache. And so in some cases, we might fail because we have not been given sufficient authority to heal that kind of infirmity. Now, let's find out what kind of faith. Now we're going to focus on faith. We're not talking about authority now. We know that the Lord has given us a measure of authority. Let's focus on faith. They didn't fail because they lacked authority. Jesus already gave them the authority. Luke 9, Luke 10. They failed because they lacked faith. What kind of faith? Verse 20. He replied, Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as a mustard seed. All right. They lacked faith as a mustard seed. That's why they failed. Now, in the NIV, it says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed. Now, that is a mistranslation. The Greek does not support faith as small as a mustard seed. The correct translation is faith as a mustard seed. Jesus is not saying that it's all right to have tiny, tiny faith like a mustard seed. No, he just rebuked them for having little faith. So how could he be, in the very next verse, saying it's okay to have faith as small as a mustard seed? It doesn't make sense. No. Jesus is referring to the nature of a mustard seed. So you should make that, you should make that correction in your Bible, please. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. The kind of faith which they lacked, resulting in their failure to drive out the demon, was mountain-moving faith. They lacked mountain-moving faith. They lacked faith as a mustard seed. Those two things are equivalent. Faith as a mustard seed is mountain-moving faith. If they had had mountain-moving faith, then they could say to a mountain, directly to the mountain, and command it to move from here to there, and the mountain would move, and nothing would be impossible for them. So the reason why they failed to dislodge the demon was because they lacked mountain-moving faith. When they commanded the demon to leave, they lacked mountain-moving faith. They lacked faith as a mustard seed. Now, let's look at verse 20 once, once again. Verse 20. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So we conclude that mustard seed faith can result in mountains being moved. Let me repeat. Mustard seed faith, faith as a mustard seed, can result in mountains being moved. Not faith as small as a mustard seed, no, but Faith 
as a mustard seed, with the nature of a mustard seed, can result in mountains being moved. Now, we're going to come back to this later, and we're, we're going to understand better what mustard seed faith means in the next hour. Let's go on to verse 21 now. Verse 21. Now, verse 21 does not appear in all Greek manuscripts. In the NIV, it appears as a footnote, but I believe it's important. Let's read it. Verse 21. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. What did Jesus mean by that? Jesus did not mean that this epileptic demon was so big that they had no hope of casting it out, that all they could do was pray and fast to God, and God would do it for them. No, that's not what he's teaching. What Jesus is teaching here is that prayer and fasting increase mountain-moving faith in order to cast demons out successfully. Nowhere does Jesus command us to ask him to drive out demons. No, Jesus commands us to drive out demons in his name. And if we want to do that successfully, there must be prayer accompanied by fasting. Why? Because that increases our mountain-moving faith. Then we will be able to cast out the demons successfully. So prayer and fasting are important in this kind of ministry, healing the sick, casting out demons as we preach the kingdom of God to the lost. Now, let's take a break, and then when we come back, we're going to learn exactly the nature of faith as a mustard seed. We're going Amen. to study the nature of mountain-moving faith. And after that, we're going to minister to people with heart conditions over the radio. Praise you God. Out there, if you know someone with a heart condition or you yourself have a heart condition, get them ready. Because we're going to minister to them and we believe God is going to heal you. Amen. Okay, my brother. Praise the Lord. Before we take this break, uh, Pastor Lau, would you give out your contact information again, please? Yes. My website is www.theelijahchallenge, a single word, theelijahchallenge.org. And my email address, this is my personal email address, Elijah, the name Elijah, 003 at gmail. Dot com. And let me just uh, spell that out for you. Elijah is spelled E-L-I-J-A-H-003 at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Praise God. We're going to take a uh, short break, and we'll be right back with uh, Pastor William Lyle, the Elijah Challenge. All right, let's get this program back on. Uh, you're listening to a live program tonight. Mega Man Radio with Evangelist Minister Pastor William Lau of the Elijah Challenge. Website, theelijahchallenge.org. And this is Basic Training 1, Session 1. Let's get Brother Lau back on. Brother Lau, God bless you. The microphone is yours, brother. Thank you, Shannon. Now, let's begin this uh, final session with the, with the question, exactly what is faith as a mustard seed or mountain-moving faith? Let's find out. We're going to look at Mark chapter 11, where Jesus curses the fig tree. Let's turn to Mark chapter 11, beginning with verse 12. <clears throat> verse 12, Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. 
When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now notice that Jesus speaking some unusual words again. He is talking to a tree. Most of us do not talk to trees for obvious reasons. Now notice what he is doing. He is speaking to the tree and he says, May no one ever eat food from you again. He is essentially cursing the tree. He is commanding the tree to wither. That's what he's doing, speaking directly to this tree. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, skipping to verse 20, down the page. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. So we see that an impressive miracle takes place. The fig tree dies. Now, how did Jesus perform this miracle? Did he pray to his father? And the answer clearly is no. How did Jesus perform the miracle? He spoke directly to the fig tree and commanded it to die. Jesus performed this miracle not by prayer, but rather by issuing a command to the fig tree. Apparently, the Father had given him authority over the tree. Jesus wanted the tree to die, so he commanded it to die, and it obeyed. That's very clear. Now, the question is exactly how how? How did Jesus issue the command to the tree, resulting in the miracle? How? Let's find out. Verse 21. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, Peter is the disciple who's very fascinated with miracles. How do we know that? Well, recall the incident in which Peter is seated on the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and Peter sees Jesus walking on the water toward him. What does Peter want to do? Peter also wants to walk on water. So based on that, I've concluded that Peter is the disciple who's very fascinated with the miracles that he sees Jesus doing. And he has just witnessed Jesus performing quite an impressive miracle, and Peter is interested in how Jesus performed the miracle. Hey, the preacher you curse has withered. How did you do it? Now, in the next verse, Jesus reveals exactly how he used authority to perform the miracle. Peter knew Jesus used authority. Peter saw him speak to the tree and command it to wither. So in the next verse, Jesus tells Peter exactly how he used authority to perform the miracle. Verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Now, I have looked at this verse in the original Greek, and there is a valid alternative translation, and I'm convinced a better translation. Literally, according to the Greek, Jesus said, have faith of God. Literally, Jesus said, have faith of God, not have faith in God. In fact, most literal versions of the Bible will render that verse, have faith of God. For example, Young's literal translation. If you look it up, Young translates it, have faith of God. The modern King James Version says, have faith of God. I believe the correct translation is, have faith 
of God. Now, that sounds funny. Most disciples have never heard of this term, have faith of God. We will think to ourselves, how is it possible that God has faith? It's not possible. We believers need to have faith in God in order to be saved. How is it possible that God himself has faith? Well, let's look at what Jesus says next. All right? Let's back up. Let's start with verse 22. Jesus says, Have faith of God. Jesus answered. Verse 23, I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, Go throw yourself into the sea. Now, that sounds familiar. Jesus is talking about mountain-moving faith. Could it be that faith of God is equivalent to mountain-moving faith? Well, let's see. Let me repeat verse 23. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, you're not praying, you're speaking directly to a mountain, and you're commanding it to go and throw itself into the sea. And does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Now, that is faith of God. It is equivalent to mountain-moving faith. If you speak to a mountain and you command it to throw itself into the sea, and when you give the command to the mountain, you have no doubt, no doubt, no doubt in your heart, but you believe that what you say to the mountain will happen, it will be done for you. That is faith of God. It's faith without a doubt. When you speak to the mountain, there's no doubt, no doubt in your heart. You believe the mountain will obey you. That's mountain-moving faith. That is faith of God. That is faith as a mustard seed. That is how Jesus spoke to the fig tree. When he spoke to the fig tree, he spoke with faith of God. When he commanded it to wither, he had no doubt in his heart. He believed that what he said would happen, and the Father did it for him. Therefore, faith of God, or mountain-moving faith, has two components. Number one, no doubt in your heart. No doubt in your heart. Number two, what I say must be done. Those are the two components of faith of God according to Jesus. Now, let's compare faith in God and faith of God. Faith in God implies us waiting on God for Him to act and to move the mountain. That's what faith in God implies. We're waiting upon the Lord for Him to act, for Him to move the mountain. We have faith in God that God will move the mountain. But faith of God implies something very different. Faith of God implies we ourselves taking action by speaking to the mountain without any doubt. Faith of God implies we speak to the mountain in the name of Jesus Christ with no doubt, commanding it to move into the sea. So faith in God is very different from faith of God. And how did Jesus perform this miracle? Jesus did not perform this miracle by praying to the Father, no, but by commanding the fig tree to wither with faith 
of God, with no doubt in his heart, with mountain-moving faith, with faith as a mustard seed. That's how Jesus performed this miracle. It was not through prayer, but it was by exercising faith of God. Is it any wonder that this principle has been veiled from the church? Because this principle has been veiled, we are not able to heal the sick and cast out demons. We have become powerless. Not that we are powerless. We have the power, but we have not been taught how to use that power and authority to heal the sick and cast out demons. I believe for many hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, that this principle has been veiled from the church, leaving us to be a very weak and helpless church. Where we have been commanded to act and have been given the authority to do so, we must not just sit around waiting for God to act. We ourselves must take action. For example, if God commands us to preach the gospel, do we say, no, God, we'll just pray for the lost, and you preach the gospel to them, God, that would be ridiculous. That's nonsense. No one does that. We know we have to preach the gospel in Jesus' name because we are the body of Christ, and God uses our voice to proclaim the kingdom of God to the lost on earth. It's the same thing with healing the sick. The Lord has already given us authority to heal the sick, and we are to use that authority with faith of God to command demons and diseases to go. But instead... Since we do not understand faith of God, all we do is, well, Lord, we'll just pray for the sick, and you heal them according to your time and your will. We have faith in you to heal the sick. It's fine to have faith in God to heal the sick, but now we need to have faith of God to do what God has given us the authority to do. We have been given authority over disease and demons, and we need to exercise that authority with faith of God, with no doubt in our hearts that what we say will come to pass. And so we do not sit around waiting for God to act. We must take action where we have been given the authority to do so. And part of this action may involve speaking forth with faith of God, with no doubt, with mountain-moving faith. Jesus performed the miracle by exercising his authority and commanding the tree to wither with faith of God or with mountain-moving faith. Now, let's talk about faith as a mustard seed because faith as a mustard seed is equivalent to mountain-moving faith, which in turn is equivalent to faith of God. Now, mustard seeds, of course, yes, they're very tiny. They're almost invisible they have very little physical substance now a nearly invisible mustard seed with very little physical substance when planted can result in a very visible mustard tree which according to Jesus is the largest of all garden plants let me repeat a mustard seed which is nearly invisible and has very little physical substance, can result in a very visible, very physical mustard tree. You see, a mustard seed is nearly invisible and has very little physical substance. 
No. In the same way, faith is invisible. Faith is invisible. And faith has no physical substance. Yes. But faith of God, or mustard seed faith, faith as a mustard seed, can move a mountain in the realm of the physical or in the realm of the here and now. Faith of God, or mustard seed faith, can move a demon, can move a disease in the name of Jesus Christ in the realm of the physical, resulting in people being healed. Faith of God, faith without a doubt, mustard seed faith, can move mountains, can heal the sick, can cast out demons when combined with authority from Jesus Christ. Let me give you five illustrations of faith of God and how it works. And after these five illustrations, we will all understand clearly how it works. First illustration, how would God move a mountain? Let's say God did did not want to hire a contractor, didn't want to use any human being. God wanted to do it himself. How would God move a mountain? Would God pray? Of course not. To whom would God pray? God, He is God. God doesn't have anyone to pray to. So how would God move a mountain? Well, God might say to the mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea. All right? Now, when God says to a mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, does God doubt that the mountain will obey him? Does God think to himself, Oh, what have I done? What if the mountain doesn't obey me? What if it doesn't move? I'll be so embarrassed. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Holy Spirit. Help me move the mountain. Does God have any doubt that the mountain will obey him? And the answer, of course, is no. Of course not. Why does God have no doubt in his heart? Why does God believe that what he says will happen? It's because the mountain is under his authority. And since it's under his authority, it must obey his command. Therefore, God does not doubt that the mountain will obey him because he knows that it is under his authority. Therefore, it must obey him. Therefore, when he speaks to it, he speaks with faith of God. Faith of God, therefore, is related to authority. Second illustration. Second illustration. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then God said, let there be light. Now, let's say for the sake of argument that when God said, let there be light, there were angels present. Let there be light is essentially a command for the light to appear. In the Hebrew, I was told, it's simply light B. Now, question. Did God have any doubt that the light would appear when he said, let there be light? Did he think to himself, oh dear, what have I done? I have these angels present. What if the light doesn't appear when I command it to? I'll be so embarrassed. I'll look so bad in front of the angels. What am I going to do? Oh, help me, Jesus. Help me, Holy Spirit. Make the light appear. Don't let me be put to shame. Did God have any doubt that the light would appear? Of course not. Why not? 
Why did God have no doubt? God had no doubt that the light would appear, that the light would obey him because he knew that the light was under his authority. He is God. Therefore, the light had to obey him. Therefore, when he spoke to it, he spoke with faith of God. He had authority over it. Therefore, he knew that it had to obey him. Therefore, when he spoke to it, he spoke with no doubt. He spoke with faith of God. Third illustration. We're going to look at Jesus cursing the fig tree. Here, Jesus is standing in front of the fig tree with Peter and the other disciples at his side. And Jesus commands the fig tree to wither. Did Jesus have any doubts that the fig tree would wither? Did Jesus say to himself, did he think to himself, Oh, what if this fig tree doesn't wither? Peter is standing right here. If this fig tree doesn't wither, I'll be put to shame. I'll look so bad in front of Peter, and he might not believe in me anymore. What should I do? Oh, help me, Father. Help me, Father. Help me, Holy Spirit. Kill this fig tree so that I'll look good in front of Peter. Don't let me be put to shame. Make this fig tree wither, Father. Did Jesus have any doubt like that when he commanded the fig tree to die? Of course not. Why not? Jesus did not doubt that the tree would obey him because he knew that it was under his authority. He knew the Father had put it under his authority. Therefore, it had to obey him. Therefore, when he spoke to it, he spoke with faith of God. You can speak to something which is under your authority with faith of God, with no doubt. Not only that, you must speak to those things under your authority with faith of God, with no doubt. If you do not, you might fail. And that's what happened to the disciples when they tried to drive out the demon of epilepsy. Illustration number four. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus arrives at Bethany four days late, four days after Lazarus dies. Lazarus is already in the tomb. Jesus brings Mary and Martha, along with some Jews, to the tomb. Jesus stands before the tomb, and he calls out, Lazarus, come forth. Now, question, did Jesus have any doubt that Lazarus would come back to life? Did Jesus think to himself, Oh dear, what have I done? I've got Mary and Martha standing right here. What if Lazarus doesn't come back to life? What if he stays dead? I'll look so bad, I'll be embarrassed. Mary and Martha won't, won't follow me anymore. What am I going to do? Help me, Father. Help me, Father. Raise him back to life, Father. Glorify the name of your Son. Father, help me. Help me, Father. Help me, Holy Spirit. Help me, help me, help me. Did Jesus have any doubt that Lazarus would come back to life? And the answer, of course, is no. Why not? Why did Jesus have any doubt? Why did he have no doubt? Jesus did not doubt that Lazarus would come back to life because he knew the Father had given him authority to raise the dead. Therefore, Lazarus had to obey his command to rise and come forth. And this is from John 5:21, by the way. You don't have to turn there, but let me just read it to you. 
For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. The Father gave Jesus authority to raise back to life any dead person he chose. Jesus knew he had authority to raise the dead. Therefore, when he commanded Lazarus to come back to life, he spoke with no doubt. He knew it was under his authority. And so when he said, Lazarus, come forth, he spoke with faith of God, with faith without a doubt, with mountain-moving faith, with mustard-seed faith. And what was the result? That invisible faith resulted in Lazarus being raised to life. See, Jesus exercised authority with faith of God. That's how we must exercise authority. Illustration number five, final illustration. Let's say you have a dog. One day, you're having a Bible study in your home. You have 12 believers present. You are teaching them the nature of authority and how to exercise that authority. Suddenly, your dog, his name is Tuffy, he walks into the room. He's standing right in front of you, right in the middle of your Bible study. And you have this idea. You want to use Tuffy as an example of how to give commands to that which is under your authority. So you stand up from your chair, you look down at Tuffy with your eyes open, and you say, Tuffy, sit. Now, question, do you have any doubt that Tuffy will sit? Are you tormented by doubt and uncertainty that Tuffy will obey your command? Now, the answer, if you indeed have authority over your dog, the answer is no. You have no doubt when you command your dog to sit. You are not tormented by doubt. What if Tuffy doesn't want to sit when you say sit? What do you do? Do you cry out to God? Do you cry out to Jesus for help? No. What do you do? You look at him, you roll up your sleeves, and you said, I said sit. And if he still doesn't want to sit, you put your hand on his rump and you force him to sit. That's authority. You don't take no for an answer. You can make him sit because he's under your authority. Now, you don't doubt that your dog will obey you because you know that he is under your authority. Therefore, your dog must obey you. Therefore, when you command it to sit, you speak with faith of God. And you make sure that he obeys your command. Now, I believe this is all very clear. Let me give you an illustration of how not to command your dog to sit. Let's say you have authority over your dog. And he is standing in front of you, wagging his tail, waiting for your command. This is how not to command him to sit. This is how not to exercise your authority over him. You get down on your knees and you close your eyes right before your dog and you say, Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Help me, Father. Help me make my dog sit. And then you say to Tuffy, Please sit. Nice dog. Jesus loves you. Hallelujah. 
please sit, and then a burst of tongues if you happen to be a charismatic. And then you say, help me, Jesus, make him sit. Please sit, Tuffy. And you're on your knees all this time. Now, do you think Tuffy is going to sit? I don't think so. Why not? Isn't he under your authority? Why doesn't he sit? It's because authority by itself is not enough. It's only part of the equation. Authority must be exercised with mountain-moving faith. Authority must be exercised with faith of God. When you give the command to your dog, you give it with no doubt, with mountain-moving faith, with mustard-seed faith. You say, sit, and you mean business, and your dog sits. That's how you get your dog to sit. That's how you exercise authority. You give the command with mountain-moving faith with absolute finality. You don't take no for an answer. You mean business when you give the command. That's how you make your dog sit. How about if you have a five-year-old son, and he's very active. He doesn't like to sit down and eat his dinner. And one day, you're his mother, and you've just cooked dinner for him, and it's two hours past dinner time. He's still running around. His name is Johnny. How do you exercise your authority over Johnny as his mother to get him to sit down and eat his dinner? Would you do the following? Would you kneel down before little Johnny and close your eyes and say, Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, and then a burst of tongues if you happen to have that gift. You say, Father, help me, make Johnny sit. And then you look at Johnny and say, Johnny, Mommy loves you, Jesus loves you too. Would you please sit down and eat? Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Mommy loves you. Now, do you think little Johnny is going to obey you? I don't think so. Why not? Don't you have authority over him as your mother? Yes, you do. But you are not exercising your authority over him in the right manner. You don't get down on your knees. You don't close your eyes. You don't speak in tongues if you happen to have that gift. You look down at him. You open your eyes and you say, Johnny... Sit, eat your dinner now. And he says, yes, mommy. That's how you exercise authority, with faith of God, with faith without a doubt, no doubt. That's when Johnny obeys. That's when your dog obeys. That's when the mountain moves. And that's when the demon obeys your command to move. So let's understand why the disciples failed to cast out the demon. According to Jesus, it was because they had little faith. They had little mountain-moving faith, which means they doubted. When they tried to cast the demon out of the boy, they doubted. They had little mountain-moving faith, which is equivalent to faith of God. They had little faith of God, which means they doubted when they commanded the demon to leave. Because of that doubt, the demon would not obey their commands and the demon would not leave and they failed to drive out the demon. Let me give you an example of how the disciples tried to cast out the demon and why they failed. Now, the father is walking with the boy outside somewhere 
And suddenly he sees the disciples. And he notices them. They are the disciples of Jesus Christ. He runs up to them and he says, Oh, aren't you the disciples of Jesus? Can you help us? My son, he's, he's got epilepsy. He, he's thrown to the fire and into the water. It's a very powerful demon. Excuse the exaggerations and the dramatizations, all right? And then the disciples look at the man and they say, Oh, uh, he, he, um, he has a very powerful demon uh, which can throw him into the fire and, uh, ooh, into the water. Oh, oh. And they say, uh, How long has this been happening? Since he was little. And immediately the disciples in their hearts they say, help me, Jesus. Jesus, where are you? Now, it turns out Jesus is still walking, climbing down the Mount of Transfiguration when this incident takes place. Jesus is still at a distance. And so they have to cast out the demon by themselves. They can't ask Jesus to help them. And so they say, okay, well, uh, we're, we'll, we'll do our best. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll try. And so they roll up their sleeves and they approach the boy and they say, In the name of Jesus, we command this demon to go. Jesus, where are you? Walk faster. Come here. We need you. We need you, Jesus. Come quickly. Help. In the name of Jesus, we command you to leave. Oh, nice demon. Nice demon. Take it easy. Jesus, help. Now, can you see why they failed? The moment you say, Jesus, help, you have given yourself away. The moment you say, Jesus, help, you have revealed to the demon that you have doubt in your heart. And if the demon knows you have doubt in your heart, that means you have little faith, and he's not going to obey your command, even though you do have authority over him. Do you see that? It's very clear. And so that's why we don't say, help me, Jesus, when we are healing the sick or casting out demons. When we say, help me, Jesus, we are giving ourselves away. And that's why we don't even say, thank you, Jesus, hallelujah. Why do we say, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, before we try to cast out a demon? It's because, generally, we have doubt. We think that by saying, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, that Jesus will be pleased with our expression of faith, and because he's pleased with us, maybe he'll help us cast out the demon. No, it's actually an expression of doubt when we say, Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. It means, I'm not sure I can do this. I need God to help me, so I'm going to, I'm going to throw him a Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Notice that when Jesus healed the sick, there was no priestly component at all. There was no Hallelujah, thank you, Father. It was completely a kingly action based upon authority. It's the same thing with healing the sick, exactly the same thing. It's the same kind of authority. And diseases and demons are cousins. We deal with them in very much the same way. And so now I believe it's quite clear how to heal the sick, how to cast out demons. If you happen to have the gift of tongues, you should not be speaking in tongues when you are trying to cast out a demon or healing the sick. And let me tell you why not. According to charismatic theology, we speak in tongues when we are confused, when we need more information, 
when we need a word of wisdom, when we need God to help us or tell us what to do. And so let's say you're trying to cast out a demon, and right before the demon, you speak in tongues. You have given yourself away. The demon knows that you need God's help. You need information, that you don't know what you're doing, and that's why you're speaking in tongues. So that is not the time to speak in tongues or to pray or to do any kind of priestly action. Now, if you want to pray, if you want to speak in tongues, you do that before you step onto the battlefield, before you step into the ring. While you are in your prayer closet, that's the time to pray, to worship God, to do the priestly ministry. That's the time to speak in tongues if you have that gift. And once you leave your prayer closet, you open your eyes, you step onto the battlefield, you go into the ring, you face the demon, you face the infirmities, and you give the command with mountain-moving faith. Purely a kingly action. And what happens? Demons will leave. Diseases will be healed. Because they know that you have authority over them and that you have faith of God. You have no doubt. Therefore, they are forced to leave. And one thing we have found is that it's important to persevere. Persevere. If they don't leave the first time, you rebuke them again. You command them again. And the mountain will begin to move. Sometimes, if it's a big mountain, it will move little by little. You will see improvements. You will see changes. The mountain begins to move. And you persevere. Keep on moving that mountain until it goes into the sea, which means the person is completely healed. So we conclude that authority alone by itself is insufficient for casting out demons or healing the sick. Authority must be exercised with mountain-moving faith or faith of God. No doubt, faith as a mustard seed. And so let's, let's do a demonstration. I'd like to invite listeners who have a heart condition or there's someone in the room with you who has a heart condition and I'm going to have you minister to that person. Here's what we're going to do. In a moment, first we're going to pray to the Father. Why do we do that? Well, it's okay to pray first if you want. It's okay to do the, the priestly action first. After all, it is ultimately God's power, God's authority, and God's faith which accomplishes the healing. Ultimately, it is the Lord who heals through us. We are simply the channels of this kind of blessing. And so we're going to honor the Lord by prayer. After the prayer, then we're going to open our eyes. We're going to take out our weapon, our M16, which is authority. And we are going to lay hands on the person's heart. And we are going to speak to that heart condition with authority and faith of God, with absolute finality. And we are going to command the heart to be healed and the pain to go and the weakness to go and the shortness of breath to go and the regular heartbeat to go in the name of Jesus Christ. All right? So, if you yourself, you have a heart condition, later on you're going to lay hands on your own heart. That's the laying on of hands. And then, I will give the commands, and you repeat the commands after me. You will speak directly to your own heart with authority and mountain-moving faith. So that's going to be a kingly action. It's not going to be prayer. We're not going to be gentle. We're not going to be nice. But we're going to be commanding with mountain-moving faith. And after that, I want you to test yourself. Test your heart. Do something that you can't do. 
Is the pain still there? Is the shortness of breath still there? Is the irregular heartbeat still there? I believe that many of you are going to sense a change or you're going to be healed. If you are, I want you to call into the show, call into the program, and give your testimony. If you experience a definite change, call Brother Shannon and let him know. Now, if, if you want to minister to someone else who is sitting right next to you who has a heart condition, then you're going to put your hand on that person's heart. It's best to have ladies ministering to ladies and men ministering to men, of course. And then you're going to repeat the commands after me, and you're going to exercise authority with mountain-moving faith. And then ask the person, how do you feel? Right? We may do this at least twice. We have enough time. And after the second time, we're going to see mountains moving into the sea. And some of you are going to be healed of your heart condition. If you are healed or you have improvement, call into the show and tell Shannon. All right? So, let's pray now to the Lord. Let's honor the Lord first. And after that, we're going to minister to those with heart conditions. Let's pray, shall we? Now, this is the priestly part. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, we have just taught your disciples how to heal the sick and cast out demons according to Scripture, Lord. And Father, we ask that you would confirm the word by releasing your power, your authority over disease and demons through your disciples now. As we apply what we have learned, Father, we pray that power and authority would be released. May you give us your faith, faith of God, faith without a doubt, mountain-moving faith, with which we will move these heart conditions into the sea and minister healing to the sick. And Father, we pray that many will be touched, many will be healed, and many will call in to share their testimony. Father, we thank you that nothing is impossible for you, and we thank you that nothing is impossible for those with mountain-moving faith. And Father, you have given us that faith tonight to us through your word. So Father, we thank you for what you are about to do to these people with heart conditions as we minister to them with the laying on of hands and with authority and faith of God. Thank you, Father, for your grace. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Now, let's open up our eyes. Okay, that was the priestly ministry. Now let's do the kingly ministry. We're going to open up our eyes. And uh, let's stand up. If you're seated, let's stand up. If the person with a heart condition cannot stand up, that's okay. They can remain seated. But those who want to minister, let's stand up. Now, put your hand on the heart now, your heart or someone else's heart. Eyes open. Now we're going to use our weapon. We're not going to pray anymore. Now we're going to rebuke and command with mountain-moving faith. Now, this is war. This is the kingly action. This is war. This is battle. We're going to fight. Okay, lay hands on the person, on the heart, wherever the pain is. Now, repeat the command after me with faith of God with the same tone that I use. Here we go. In the name of Jesus Christ, we rebuke this heart condition. Be healed 
in the name of Jesus Christ. Any spirit of infirmity, go, leave, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus Christ. Go, do not come back. Jesus heals you. In the name of Jesus, heart disease, we rebuke you. Go, leave now in Jesus' name. Heart, be healed in the name of Jesus. Heart rate, be restored. Rapid heartbeat, go down in the name of Jesus. Irregular heartbeat, be normal, beat normally, be restored in the name of Jesus. Pain in the heart, I rebuke you, go, leave, now, in the name of of Jesus. Blocked artery, clear up. Be unblocked in the name of Jesus. Blocked artery, be opened up in the name of Jesus Christ. Shortness of breath, go in Jesus' name. Pain, go in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus, be healed. Shortness of breath. Go. Pain. Go. Rapid heartbeat. Slow down to normal. Irregular heartbeat. Be restored. In the name of Jesus. Heart rate. Be normal. Heart disease, go. Heart, be healed. Enlarged heart, go back to normal size. Jesus Christ heals you. All pain, go. Tiredness, go. In the name of Jesus, be healed. Be restored. Be made whole. Jesus heals you now. And every spirit of infirmity. Go, all of you. Do not come back. Jesus heals you. Now, get up. Walk around. Get up and walk around. Do what you could not do before. If you need to, climb the stairs. Look for the pain. Check your pulse. Some of you have been touched by the Lord. Is the pain still there? Are you still tired? Walk around. Start jumping up and down. Climb the stairs. Do whatever you could not do before. Check it now, because some of you have been healed. Now, if you are healed, or if you feel much better, if you feel a definite change, 
you can call in to Shannon and let him know. And after this program is over, I'm sure Shannon will be able to minister complete healing to you. Some of you feel better but not completely healed. Now, Shannon will be able to minister to you in the very same way. And if you're not completely healed, you will be, as Shannon ministers to you with authority and mountain-moving faith. Now, if the Lord has touched you, please call into the show. Please call into the show right now because we want to hear your testimonies. Now, this concludes session one of basic of the basic training. Uh, if there is uh, interest, we can do session two next week or at some later date. Uh, in session two, we will look into the book of Acts and see how the disciples ministered healing in the book of Acts to see if there's any difference from the disciples. Uh, we will study James chapter 5 and look at how James taught the disciples to minister healing to sick believers in the context of building up the church. Uh, we will study some new things related to healing. So praise the Lord. Amen. Uh, Pastor Lau, let's definitely count on that. Uh, we've got to do part two. Uh, this information is crucial. This is weapons of our warfare, and we've got to know how to do what Jesus did, because we're going to need to operate in this, folks, in the time that is ahead. Today, you know, people are dying because nobody is there to stand in the gap. No one has the mountain moving faith and is applying it and commanding it uh, as we've been given the authority to do. So we need we need more of this training, brother. Definitely. Mm, yes, I'd be um, delighted. Yeah. In fact, um, in addition to this radio program, folks, this is a shortened version of the full Elijah Challenge training. Um, I would encourage everybody that's in a location uh, or can get uh, in a car or airplane and travel to one of these locations to go out to this seminar. Uh, where is your next meeting going to be held, Brother Lau? Going to have that in uh, Texas? Yeah, San Antonio, Texas, May 5 and 6. That's Thursday and Friday. San May Antonio, 5 and Texas. 6. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's coming up just next week, folks. Uh, the ElijahChallenge.org is the main website. Now, Brother Lau, uh, in addition to um, the conferences there, for, let's say there's someone listening uh, overseas, as frequently many of our uh, listeners are from other parts of the world, and uh, could not make it in person, uh, can they get any of these video trainings on your website too? Yes, absolutely. Just go to the homepage, and uh, somewhere near the top of the homepage, they will see a link to which they can download the videos for free. Just look for uh, Basic Training 1, Basic Training 2. You'll see the links. It's near the middle of the homepage. If you click on if you click on those links you'll be directed to pages where you can download all of the videos basic training 1 basic training 2 and it's all free freely we have received freely we give Amen and also you have uh your your personal uh, testimony and biography of uh how you got into the ministry is that available also on the website Yes that is available somewhere. We just redesigned the website, so we're just trying to uh, figure our way out. But it is available. I will, uh, I'll put it, I'll make it 
I'll put it on the home page somewhere where people awesome. can get our testimony. Awesome. That's something you don't want to miss, folks. Um, we've got a couple calls coming in. Uh, we have about 12 minutes on the live feed before we go off the air. And uh, if uh, you're listening to this on an MP3 archive tonight or tomorrow, um, and the Lord has touched you tonight, you've been healed, uh, we want to hear from you. We want you to write in, and we're going to pass uh, all testimonials on to Pastor Lau. Because, uh, brother, y'all are um, accumulating the reports, the miracles. Uh, how many miracles have y'all eyewitnessed so far um, since you have started this training? A number across the world, haven't you? Yeah, we we stopped counting. What's important to us is not how many miracles that we ourselves personally witnessed, but the people that we train. They go out and they preach the gospel, they heal the sick, and they see many, many miracles, and then they go on and train still other people who go out and become very fruitful in the same way. So it's impossible to count now how many miracles are happening as a result of of the training. Uh, After a while, folks, uh, there gets to be so many that you can't keep track. Yeah, And we praise God for that. uh, I can share with you one testimony. Uh, Last year when we were in Brazil, we spent a week in this very, very idolatrous area, Monday through Friday, every morning, training 600 disciples how to heal the sick. And then in the afternoons, every afternoon, Monday through Friday, they would go door to door in the city, uh, preaching the gospel and healing the sick. And this was in a very, very dark place in Brazil. Uh, After the week was over, they recorded 1,920 healings during that one week in this very, very dark place. Almost 2,000 people healed in one week through these 600 disciples who went door to door. So so that's just one event. Praise God. Uh, We've got a couple calls here. Let's go to the first caller, area code 850. 850, you're on the air with Pastor William Lau. Hello. Hello. Hi, this is Ray. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you, Ray. Hi. Um, we, I prayed over my daughter, Marcy. She had an irregular heartbeat. And um, as I was listening, it went regular. Isn't that wonderful? Oh. Praise, God. Regular. Praise, Praise God. God. She's right here, and I'd love to let you say hello to her. She's 17. Okay? God bless you. She's a little shy. Hold on. Honey, don't. Come on, please. Say hello. <laughs> Hello, Marcy. Hey. Hello, Marcy. Are you feeling better? Yeah, my mom checked my pulse rate, and she said it went normal. Wow, wonderful. Praise the Lord. God is so good. I know, it's amazing. I wish I to go on air, but it's all right. Hey, sister, you know what the Word says? They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Your testimony uh, is powerful that it encourages people. That's yes. good. I hope people and, are listening. Yes, and Marcy, let me just share with the, share this with you. You can lay hands on yourself. If it ever comes back, then lay hands on yourself and say, leave in Jesus' name, go, and it will go, okay? Yeah, Don't me and my back. mom said the prayer over each other. Yeah, good. Make sure it doesn't come back. Yeah, we The will. enemy is a sore loser. If it tries to come back, drive him out again. Drive it out. You got that? We will. <laughs> okay. Because you have authority over this thing, keep it away. Don't let it come back. Yeah, Praise we won't let it come back. Praise yeah. Jesus. Hallelujah. Yeah, thank God. God bless you, Marcy. Thank you for your call. Thank you. You're welcome. 
Thank you, Marcy. Folks, what a testimony. Let's go to the next caller. We're going to take a call from area code 318. 318, you're on the air with Pastor William Lau. How are you tonight? Brother Shannon. Hey there. Hey, this is Chad. Brother Chad, God bless you. Hey, how are you? Brother, praise the Lord. Amen. Listen, I uh, I want to take a moment to call in and say thank you. Uh, just, you know, thank you for all the help you've given me so far. You want to share what the Lord has done with you, Chad? Where were you at uh, about two weeks ago, brother? About uh, two weeks ago, I was uh, contemplating ways to kill myself. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, and, and thank you. To, to Jesus and Brother Shannon, his ministry, I've uh, I've gone past that. So I just wanted to uh, you know call him and say thank you, brother. He loves you. And uh, uh, you mentioned something to me in the chat tonight that uh, even when the enemy throws a thought at you, um, now you're hearing another voice. You're hearing the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit telling you to do? To confess. Confess the sin. Yeah, absolutely. And resist the devil. We resist the devil, he shall flee, right? That's right. Amen. Praise the Lord, brother. Uh, We're going to call and keep praying with you, Brother Chad. And listen, folks, uh, there's a lot of people out there that uh, Satan has lied to, said that there's no hope. Uh, The situation is not going to change. They're not going to be healed. And it's just a lie from the pits of hell. You know, we've got the power and authority to tread on these serpents and scorpions to lay hands on the sick and lay hands on ourselves, command healing in Jesus Christ's name, just as Pastor Lyle has been teaching us tonight. And we need to use that and resist the devil, and um, we're going to overcome. God bless you for calling in tonight, Brother Chad. Amen. We'll be talking to you more, Brother. Thank you very much for that right. testimony. Thank you. Let's go to the next caller. We've got a caller, uh, five minutes remaining. Let's go to 240, area code 240. You're on the air with Pastor William Lyle. Hello, caller from 240. Hello. Hey there. Okay, I uh, guess the, we missed that caller. Uh, folks, we have about four minutes remaining. Brother Lau, praise God. Yes, God is good. Amen. His word. And brother, that's just the beginning. I know we're going to have uh, more testimonies that are be coming in because uh, we have a lot of people that... Uh, hit this program off of the downloads and archives. This can be circulating around. Folks, uh, if the Lord has done something for you tonight, you've been healed, we want to hear from you tonight. And uh, we're going to have Pastor Lau back on next week. Pastor Lau, uh, we can have you on any night that uh, is amiable to you. It's always an honor and a pleasure to have you on. And I'm looking forward to part two. Uh, you just contact me and let me know what night's good, and we'll set it up for you. Um, tonight, folks, was... Uh, basic training one session one and you would call the next installment basic training one session two is that correct pastor Lyle? yes yes that's right uh healing from distance is that right yes we'll include that as well healing at a distance yes. amen praise what we just did but i'll explain yes. the basis for it from scripture yes absolutely because jesus christ uh healed in person laying on in hands and then there were times where he but spoke a word and people were healed at a distance mm-hmm Yes, we'll study that as well. Praise God. Folks, um, what an exciting time to be alive, Brother Lyle. You know, we had some comments in the chat room tonight. People were saying, you know, this is something I need. I can carry with me anywhere in the world I go. You know? Yes. 
it's it's understanding this authority, and the enemy can't take it away from you, folks. Uh, If you know where you are in Jesus Christ, you've got this authority. Uh, You've got got a powerful weapon against the enemy. And uh, what I mean to say is, you know, (laughs) we can lose our houses, we can lose cars, we can lose our jobs, Pastor Lau. They can even Mm. put us in prisons. But you know what? They can't take the word of God that is written on the tables of our heart. That's right. Yes. And you know, and so Jesus I, lives I, in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We have that power and authority in us. Amen. And so I, I'm excited. I'm excited about uh, learning the weapons of the warfare that Jesus uh, has given us and called us to use. And uh, wherever we may go around the world, folks, uh, God can use you right there to uh, lead the person to Christ, uh, to lay hands on the sick. And they can be healed in Jesus Christ's name, right there where they're at. And so for, this is this is exciting, uh, brother Lau. After the uh, the San Antonio Crusade next, uh, or excuse me, uh, next week, I guess it's May fifth. Yes. Next two weeks. Uh, when will be your next date? Uh, have you all planned out ahead? Will you be doing any more dates in the USA? Uh, so far, no dates in the USA. We. We will be having one in Canada, near Calgary at some point. Uh, it could be around September. The date has not been established yet. But uh, it's possible that other dates will be added uh, later on in the year. Uh, those will appear on the schedule. But as of now, we only have one in uh, near Calgary for around September. Folks, check out the website for more updates. Give out your contact email again, please, brother. Okay, it's simply the name Elijah, 003, at gmail.com. I'll just spell it out for you. E-L-I-J-A-H, the name Elijah, followed by 003, at gmail.com. And the website, of course, is www.theelijahchallenge.org. Praise There's God. Lots of information there. Pastor Lau, if someone would like to donate to the ministry, how can they uh, support the ministry? Uh, if you go to the home page, um, well, thank you for asking, by the way. Uh, go to the home page. Uh, at the uh, very top of the home page, there is an item that says donate. It's right at the top right of the home page. Just click on donate, and that will take you to a page where you can uh, give an offering to the ministry if you would like. Praise God. Amen. Brother, God bless you for coming on tonight. It was an honor and a pleasure. Um, this will be one that many people are going to listen over and over again and then go out and do it, as Jesus commanded us to do. And we look forward to having you uh, next week for part two, brother. Yes, thank you. I look forward to it. And thanks for the opportunity tonight. It was wonderful. Praise God. God bless you, brother. Folks, that was Pastor William Lau of the Elijah Challenge. We thank him for coming on tonight. And... Uh, Encourage everyone to pass this program around. Spread the word about the Elijah Challenge. Uh, Next week, we'll have him back on for part two of Basic Training One. And I want to encourage everybody out there to get behind the ministry, support it. Uh, This is a ministry that is impacting people around the world. They're busy for the Lord, and it's a great ministry to be a part of. And, um, again, the ElijahChallenge.org, Pastor William Lau. He's also up on Facebook. Um, And, of course, his email. And we've got it... uh, in our show notes. Uh, This program will be in the archives in about 10 minutes. If you missed it in its entirety, you can play it back, free download, spread it around, and uh, praise God. I want to thank everybody for tuning in, wherever you may be in the world tonight. 
Uh, we want to thank you. And we'll see you uh, tomorrow night at uh, 8 p.m. God bless everyone. We'll see you on the next show. Thank you.